are listening to an episode of Dope with Lime, a production of the Lillian E. Smith Center at Piedmont College. Each episode of Dope with Lime explores the life, work, and legacy of Lillian E. Smith. Subscribe on iTunes or SoundCloud, and make sure to follow us on Twitter, at LES underscore center. Welcome. My name is Matthew Touch, and I am the director of the Lillian E. Smith Center at Piedmont College. Today, I'm speaking with Karen Brannon, a journalist whose work has appeared in publications such as Life, Mother Jones, the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, and more. Her book, The Family Tree, details her investigation to the horrific lynching of three black men and one black woman in 1912 in Harris County, Georgia. Today, we will talk about her book, her personal journey, and the role that Lillian Smith's work has played in her life and activism. Welcome, Karen. Thank you very much, Matt. Glad to be here. I'm glad you could be here, too. I mean, we've been talking a little bit before this about Lillian Smith and Paula Snelling and George and just all the connections that we've kind of made. And let's just get into it because your book really kind of deals with what I would say what Lillian Smith did in Killers of the Dream, her personal journey into herself. Your book, The Family Tree, details your investigation to the horrific lynching of three black men and one black woman in 1912, of course, in Harris County. This was a personal investigation as well, connected with your family. And thinking about this, I can't help but partly think about the camper that Lillian Smith talks about in Killers of the Dream, who told Smith, you're telling us to hate those that we love. Can you talk about what happened in 1912 and how confronting those events has affected your journey to overcome inherited notions about race? Ah, yes. Uh, I knew that I had to go down to Harris County, Georgia in 19. 95. I think I had always known that I had to go down to Harris County, Georgia, but I had been putting it off in favor of writing about, I was an investigative reporter, writing about other people's families' transgressions and avoiding my own. And I had, in fact, been taught and been brought to believe and experienced personally that my grandfather, the sheriff, was a wonderful man. I had no reason to uh, see him as one of those awful Southern sheriffs of moviedom and civil rights movement. Fortunately, he had died before the civil rights movement really got underway, so I never had to witness what his, what his role would be. But anyway, uh, I knew I had to go and at that particular point because I was the grandmother of a racially mixed little girl who I had been keeping a secret from her uh, great-grandmother and her great-aunts in Columbus, Georgia. And I was having nightmares about what was going to happen to all of us. And uh, they were pretty vivid, uh, you know, kind of post-traumatic types of nightmares, which made no sense because for years I had been out as a... Um, as an anti-racist. I had started an anti-racist school in Fort Wayne, Indiana. I had written for years about racism and against racism, and nobody was going to hurt that child. But something in me was terrified. And I had done an oral history with my grandmother, the sheriff's wife, in 1984, in which she had uh, told me, I asked her at the end of the interview, what is your most unforgettable memory. And without batting an eye, she said, the hanging. She didn't say the lynching. She said the hanging. 
And she proceeded to tell me that they had hanged a woman and some men, she didn't say how many, downtown in Hamilton, Georgia, that they were moonshiners, that they had been found guilty. So she was whitewashing it. She didn't say they were black even. And you know how it is in the South, if there are black people involved, you're going to know there are black people involved if you're white. So I didn't make much of that, but it all started coming back. And I thought, there's something, there's something I've got to find out. So I went down, and after many, many years of going back and forth and doing a lot of inner work and relying a lot on Lil Smith and especially on Killers of the Dream, I finally put it together in a form that I could uh, live with, maybe. You know, I, I had the story. It would take me more years to really gather together the, the spleen and the spine and the guts to put this book out because I had been conditioned. I grew up in Columbus, Georgia uh, in the 40s and the 50s, and I was taught racial etiquette along with everybody else, and I rebelled against it, but not totally. And I bought it to a greater extent than I realized. So here I was now in my, you know, near 60s, feeling like a child again, feeling like I can't hurt mama. This will just kill mama. How many times did we say that? How many times did, did we hear that? So what had happened? This is the story. And that sounds, that sounds so familiar, even for somebody like me who's, you know, yeah. in his oh, 40s. Yeah. yeah, and I'm still, right now, a lot of my time is spent working with other white people, white Southern bred people, to tell their stories. And it's all about, you know, hurting mama. Yeah. Uh, even if mama's been dead for 20 years, which, you know, many of them have. So the story that happened that my grandmother wanted me to know but didn't want me to know or couldn't face herself in its raw uh, truth was that on midnight, January 22nd, 1912, just a few blocks from the square in Hamilton, Georgia, beside the baptismal font, at the Friendship Baptist Church, which was a, an African-American church built uh, at the end of the war, four people were viciously slaughtered. They were hanged and shot about 300 times. One was a woman, Lodeska Crutchfield, who became the first woman of, uh, the first reported woman to be lynched in Georgia. The three men, one was uh, a young farmer, 21 years old. One was a, a, a preacher, Burl Hardaway. And one was uh, another farmer, uh, Eugene Harrington. Uh, the young man's name was John Moore. Now, I knew at the time I had those names. I knew at the time that my mother's mother my mother's father's mother was a Moor. But, you know, because of my implicit bias, it never occurred to me for a very long time that he was a cousin. And one of the reasons, I, I'm sure, I mean, it was hard enough to accept that my family had done this to anybody, but that they had done it to someone that they knew to be 
a cousin who had in fact been raised with them was almost unbearable. I, I couldn't deal with it. So that took a long time to, to, to process that and to make that real, to write about it. But I knew why I had gone down to get why I had to get this story. Because I was doing in my own upscale, educated, up north way, I was doing the same thing that they had done. I was hiding, I was rejecting a family member who happened to be a slightly different color. And I had Lillian Smith with me. Lillian Smith, really, I think Lillian Smith had to know this story. Though, you know, it's not the only story, unfortunately, like this. There are many stories like this all over the South. But between Killers of the Dream and Strange Fruit, my hair was standing up on my head because there were so many similarities between this story and those that she was writing. There's there's so much in what you said. The thing that sticks out, I think, about Lillian Smith is that I've talked to multiple people about the ways that that book and her writing has affected them along their journeys. Uh Um, Even if it's along a journey of, you know, uncovering something that happened in the past, or if it's just a journey of themselves coming to terms with these constructions of race that we have, there's just so much that that book specifically Killers of the dream has pulled out. So I think that that's a, a really kind of, powerful testament to to just how powerful that work is and how important that work is even now. I mean, you mentioned, yeah. of course, doing this work in the 90s and starting doing the interview in the 80s. Yeah. And then, of course, Andrew Bett Grace and um, Chip Brantley and Connor O'Neill with White Lies using it yeah. kind of inspiration for their story um, about James Reed, reporting on that. But the, the issue of lynchings, I think, in the South, I mean, it's We've talked about it so much, I know. And there's some things that we need to talk about that actually Lillian Smith talks about. And you've told me things about Paula Stanton that I didn't know. I didn't know much about her. And I've tried to look up things where Smith talked about lynching. I know that she talked about it with campers in 1946, uh, the Morris Ford lynching, where there were two black couples who were lynched, I think, in Monroe, Georgia. And she taught, she actually writes to the campers' parents, which I think is is really interesting for her because typically when she writes to the campers' parents, she's writing about, you know, what they've done at camp, how happy they are, stories about bus eye, things that are going on. There are little things here and there. But she has a whole paragraph, and this is after Strange Fruit, she has a whole paragraph that says, we, there, was a, there was a recent lynching in um, Georgia and, you know, miles from here, and we talked about it. And the campers asked, how did, did those couples or did those mothers have children? How are the children doing? And she didn't write that for the campers, she wrote it for the parents which I think is really pointed, like I said, because typically those discussions weren't in those, in those Laurel Leaves. But right. the thing that really stuck out to me was I was looking through, of course, Rose Gladney's collections of Lillian Smith's letters, and in May 1940, you know, Walter White, the NAACP, he had, the investigator of lynchings, basically, wrote to Lillian Smith about an unreported lynching in Georgia uh, that she mentioned in a mimeograph in the North Georgia Review. So not in the North Georgia Review, but one of the kind of pieces that went out in between issues. She told him that she could not give him any specific information apart from what occurred. A black man had killed his white boss who was not arrested. The white man's brother killed the black man and no trial occurred. Smith wrote to Walter White, 
that the man Smith spoke to about the incident said, quote, the white man's brother had a right to shoot the black man down. No one during the conversation suggested the black man's right as an American citizen to a trial. And in follow-up letters, Smith told him that she did not tell everything because her informant was Paula Snelling's brother-in-law. And she continued, quote, the Snellings, while as kind and good-natured as the average white Southerner, accept the prevailing customs and mores uh, without giving them much criticism, end quote. She told Walter White that if it involved her family, she would have no problem relaying detailed information, but she held back because it was Snelling's family. And this made me think about your story a little bit and the one that you talk about. Can you talk some about this idea of, quote, protection um, that Smith has for Snelling and her family in this moment and how that relates to broader incidents of racial violence, especially with, with your story about you not wanting to face the truth as well or having to come to right. face the truth? Right, yeah. <sighs> You've given me a lot to respond to. I uh, was amazed, quite frankly, uh, when I started my trips down and interviewed people just willy-nilly. I would have given anything. One thing I'm going to mention about these letters is that if you turn the page over to 47, you see that, or actually over to 46, that she actually, Lil Smith actually wrote and gave Walter White mm-hmm. some very valuable information. She protected... Paula Snelling's brother-in-law, but she gave other names of people who might help him. So she had a network of people that she knew were of like mind and were open to helping in these matters. And so I was happy to see that because when I first heard about this uh, or was reading about it, I was very disappointed and, and almost angry with her that she didn't you know but the more i thought about it uh i think it's a complicated situation i told i'll tell a story about paula snelling's family which i discovered when i was doing my research one of the things that happened after dusky crutchfield who was the woman lynched in hamilton in 1912 was a few months later there was another woman. Now, there had been no black women lynched in Georgia, at least on the record, in all this time. So suddenly, there was, I remember it was either Walter White or it may have been, I think it was W.E.B. Du Bois, after the Hamilton lynching, said, what is it going to be next, children? And lo and behold, in August of that same year, there was a 16-year-old boy uh, lynched right down the road from Hamilton in Columbus, my hometown. But also, there was a lynching of a woman in Pinehurst, Georgia, which was Paula Snelling's uh, hometown. And Paula Snelling's was, I think it was 1913, I think it was the next year. Paula Snelling was 13 years old. No, I think it's 1912. I'm sorry. But Paula Snelling was 13 years old, a very, very impressionable age. And without going into a lot of detail, uh, the woman lynched was 60. She was a housemaid of a family that lived five doors down from the Snellings family. The lynching was carried out, according to newspapers, at the hands of prominent citizens of Pinehurst and she was torn in half because of the way they lynched her it was ghastly and of course nothing no one was ever named and nothing was ever done 
the woman had been already diagnosed with mental illness. And the courts had ordered her sent to Milledgeville for treatment, but there were no beds. And so she had continued to work with this family. And she had, there had been a dispute between her and the woman that she worked for, and she killed her. So the men, of course, were outraged, and, and this is what they did. Now, you know, this, had, this was never touched on in anything I've seen in any of Snelling or Smith's writings, but I, I cannot but believe that it had a really powerful effect on her. And I noticed that in one of the letters or somewhere, I think that where uh, Rose was writing about their relationship, she mentioned that Paula Snelling was not of like mind mm -hmm. to Lillian Smith on, the, on all these matters of race. So, you know, I think given, you know, what was probably her sensitivity about any of this coming out, given Smith's strong dependency at many levels on Paula Snelling. You know, this made for a perfect storm of protectionism. Yeah. And I have to say, you know, to be really honest, there are things I did not put in my book to protect certain people. Yeah. I think about, you know, you mentioned that she was 13 or so at the time. I just tried to look up the incident. I couldn't find anything in the quick Google search I did, but. You, the you woman's name was, the, the woman's name was Anne Bostwick, B-O-S-T-W-I-C-K. Okay. You mentioned though about Paula being, you know, impressionable at 13. And I, I always think about, there's a couple of images. I know I talk about these a lot. They always come to mind. And I, I think about, oh, I forgot his name. But this is her first lynching, which is a piece that was for an art commentary on lynching in 1935, NAACP's art commentary on lynching. And what it shows is, it doesn't show the victim. It doesn't show the person being murdered. It shows the group of white people walking in the direction of, or looking in the direction of the lynching, the, the individual being killed. And there's a little girl on top of these two women's shoulders and the, the women's faces look all ghastly and everything, but the little girl looks innocent. She kind of has her hand to her, to her chin yeah. Yeah. and is looking at that scene. And yeah. just the impressionable aspect of that and I mean I, I think about even the, the postcards where you see kids in the, in the yeah. images and I think about James Baldwin's going to meet the man and stories like that yeah the effects yeah, that we, things have on on impressionable minds and not just impressionable right. minds but on everybody yeah you know and it didn't even have to be that that blatant there were so many ways that we were terrorized and I think this is, and by we, I mean white people. And it, it has taken me a while to pick up on this and to talk about it openly. But what do you um, mean? I think I know what you mean. I like the way you phrase it. What do you mean by terrorized? There were things that we were shown, pictures that we were shown or stories that we were told or little uh, comments that parents would make uh, that were not necessarily, that, that were part of our racial education. You know, I was never threatened personally. I was never told, if you do this, this is going to happen. 
but I remember being shown uh, photographs when I was, uh, you know, probably in the fourth or fifth grade, third or fourth grade at St. Elmo Elementary School in Columbus, Georgia. There were photo- photographs passed around of, it was actually worse than the lynching photographs. It was, a, it was uh, heads, uh, black people's heads had been cut off and put on white picket fences. And whether that was, you know, that was too early for Photoshop. I don't know where that came from, but I never forgot that. And, you know, I was always told, you know, that I could get, I got the message, and I especially got the message from the um, Emmett Till meeting, that white people could cause this to happen. That, you know, you you are dangerous as a white person. You can get black people in trouble you know, by saying something stupid that causes, I mean, I began to see white people, you know, my father was a doctor. My mother was not the kind of woman that would have gone to a school and screamed at black children, you know, integrating the school. She might have wanted to, but she never would have done it. But I think there were many ways that we were terrified, that we were terrified both of our parents and of those black people that they were so afraid of. No reason. But, you know, they were. We were taught that black people, other than those that worked for us, were dangerous. And when you when you mentioned that terrorize, the first thing that popped in my mind was Lillian Smith when she talks about Colors of the Dream that my parents taught me to love to love my neighbor as myself, yet I'm always superior to a black person. Oh, absolutely. You know, that those types of things. And right. I think that, that the the phrasing of it being terrorized. I think is powerful because that's a sub it's not, it's not subtle, but I mean, it's, it's not a violent, physically violent thing, but it's a psychologically violent thing. And it's the same thing she talks about too, about false hope and false fears, what the politicians and people in power fill people's ears with about being afraid of somebody who isn't white like you. Right. Yeah. So I, I like that kind of phrasing as it being terrorizing. Yeah. Because that's what she well, deals with and that's what you deal with too. And I think this is why, you know, this is one of the ways that she was so uh, advanced um, and so, such a visionary. And it may be the one way that she still is, that, that she's still out ahead of an awful lot of people today. I mean, we've come a way in terms of scholarship, in terms of, you know, we're all out looking for lynch mob names and we're all about reparations. And I mean, some of them all of us, of course. But, but we're not, you know, we're still a long way as white people from uh, interrogating ourselves right. as, to, as to how uh, racism has hurt us and continues to hurt us. And it's people interested in that because it feels at first mention, it feels like centering whiteness, it feels like, oh, poor me, it feels like like fragility. So, you know, I think that those of us that are still out there in the arena trying to have this conversation have to be very careful of that. But, you know, in all honesty, that it has been African-Americans that have pushed me into doing this, into looking at our own brokenness. And I talk about mine, you know, because I had to go through uh, dealing with that in order to get this book out. I mean, that's 
you know, that's was for me the big victory. It wasn't the book, it was getting it out. It was just being willing to say, you know, this is my people. This is yeah. this is us. I think that that the more I think about it, I think that's the most effective way to yeah. to instruct people is to show that vulnerability. Because another thing that I always go back to Smith about, it's personal. Yeah. She doesn't, she talks about Julie, of course, the, the, the girl who came into her right. house and right. that whole story. But she doesn't talk much personally, at least a ton in, in her work, but she uses personal pronouns. First person, personal pronoun. She puts herself into the conversation. And even though she's not explicit all the time about her examining herself, but that's what she does. And I think that that's kind of what makes her stand out is that personal vulnerability. Right, yes. You know, she said something, back to the Walter White letter, she said something very interesting uh, to me in her letter to Walter White because she was clearly struggling with how he saw her and how much she wanted to be of help in giving, in giving him names. But she said, you know, I have to, something like, I have to avoid sensationalism because I am trying to appeal to a wider, to, you know, to white Southerners on a wider basis. And, you know, that may have been a cop-out or it may have been the essential wisdom that she had to hold to continue to do what she did. Well, I see, that reminds, I'm trying to look for the quote. I mean, it was something I was going to ask you earlier, but it reminds me of, of her persona. And every time I see her talk, the way she presents herself. Uh-huh. That rhetorical act of she presents herself as that white Southern woman that she writes about. Oh yeah, oh yeah. <laughs> I, think that, I think that that I think that that goes away too because she has that smile. She I keep telling people she reminds me of my grandmother. Like uh-huh. You know, she, she's the woman who would before the you know orderlies come in make up her bed. Um, oh yeah. Oh, she fell yeah. out of the bed and which my grandmother did. She fell out of the bed when she was, I think, in the nursing home. And before she called the orderlies to come help her, she made her bed up and then went back on the floor. I mean, she reminds me of that. Part well, of that. She, she, was a, she was a divine woman. I mean, she right. was many personas. She was, she was amazing. She was a Renaissance woman. You know, I was so interested when I stayed there. I finished my book uh, on Streamer Mountain in, in the cottage, uh, in one of the cottages there. And... Uh, I was especially interested in all the books, which had been mm-hmm. Lillian Smith's or Paula Snelling's books. Or Esther. And they were all the books, yeah. Uh, they were all the books that I had, had, you know, brought up on and was, right. you know, was still crazy about. And I thought, you know, this woman living in this time, you know, she was my mother's age. Right. Um, a little bit younger, maybe, but. No, she was, she was older, actually. And what? She was older than my mother. Um, you know, how she could have been like that. I never knew a person like that. And, you know, when I, when I discovered, I don't recall when Killers of the Dream fell into my hands, but very early on, uh, out of college. I wasn't in college. I was out of college, but I was still in my early 20s. And it was like therapy. It was like the best therapy I ever had. And believe me, I've had a lot of it because she said she was me. You know, she mm-hmm. saw life the way I saw life. 
And yet she was not me because she, she had the nerve to write about it and to act on it. And she had lived her life acting on her values. Yeah. And I had lived my life sort of trying to figure out how to quit being such a hypocrite. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, full of loathing and guilt and shame and all of that that we do. if We don't just completely sell out and forget about it. So here was this one white woman, this one white Southern woman that I had ever known, even though I didn't know her, for me to hang on to and say, I can, you know, I can, I can do that. And I think she's been that to, and continues to be that. And I try to be that now, you know, to other, other white Southerners, male and female, uh, who are going through the same thing. You know, it's like, it never stops. There are, you know, people are still afraid to look, yeah. uh, eaten up inside by something in their selves that says something ain't right here, but I dare not look. So I take their hand and I say, this is where to look. And then this is what to do with what you find. And, you know, there is this great movement now in the country. I wish Miss Lil could be here to see it. Uh, there's an organization called Coming to the Table where, you know, hundreds of people, black and white, are finding each other through DNA, through gene genealogy, through social media. You know, there's this great blossoming of family finding one another who have long ago been divided as mine was by slavery and by lynching and by all the other ways that we have been segregated from one another. Well, that I mean, that leads us to the perfect qu closing question because you mentioned her library. And we talk about coming together and you talk about pointing people where to go. And I was looking at an interview you did with the Daily Tar Hill in 2016. And you've already talked about Smith, but this is what you said. They asked you about some of the authors that have inspired you. And you told them, Quote, the early authors that inspired me in college and right out of college, when I first began to make some real changes in how I saw things racially and began to join the civil rights movement and do things like that, was a white woman named Lillian Smith who wrote a wonderful book about white racism and what it does, what racism does to white people. And then you say also James Baldwin, who I love, and Toni Morrison. I was actually just reading Stranger in the Village, parts of that over again this morning. Can you elaborate some and just just talk about what worked besides Smith or others well, you know, you know, moved you. When I, I got really radicalized uh, at the University of Georgia uh, in 1962 when Charlene Hunter, uh, Charlene Hunter at the time, came uh, on campus uh, and I met her and bodyguarded her with some of my sorority sisters a few times and uh, got in a tangle with my father about you know i shouldn't get involved with these things you never know what will happen and charlene hunter and was the first african-american woman at uga yes, right? yes she was and just to see her bravery you know and to see her courage and to meet her and she was the first middle class african-american person i had ever met and it, it was an eye-opener you know, and not that other, you know, I was, I was mostly influenced, you know, I have been influenced for my whole life by Edna, who's the, the woman that raised me when my mother worked. But right out of the University of Georgia, I got married and I left and I moved north. 
And I began to read every, I felt like a prisoner left, let out of, uh, you know, mm -hmm. let out of a police state. I could read anything I wanted to read. I began to, you know, read every, like, writer I could possibly get my hands on. But the more radical, the better. And among those that I really loved, my favorite was James Baldwin. Mm -hmm. uh, but I loved Richard Wright. And, uh, and I read, of course, Martin Luther King. Baldwin, for me, was, he was so brilliant. And mm -hmm. he was a window on something I had never known. I had never been allowed a kind of relationship with a black man and with his mind in, in, you know, in my teachings and my experience, the black men were, were others and were, you know, kind of had to act a, a certain role. And for this brilliant black man to be writing so beautifully about, and I still read, I read him all the time. I'm rereading uh, No Name in the Street right now. You know, he, he makes me come alive. But I read Angelo, I read uh, Alice Walker. Uh, I was also teaching for a time, I taught women's labor history at the University of Minnesota. And there I met white uh, working class writers uh, that, that I loved uh, and that, who influenced me, like Tilly Olson and Maridel Lesseur. I don't know if you've ever heard of Maridel Lesseur, but she's a wonderful writer. Zora Neale Hurston, of course, was another one of my favorites. Uh, Harriet Arno, who wrote a wonderful book called The Doll Maker. Just putting me in touch with my white working class roots, which are very deep and very strong but which had been basically cut off to me uh, by my mother who, was, who married the doctor and became upwardly mobile. I was an educator and uh, I was involved with starting schools that attempted to be uh, more pro-child uh, and anti-racist. So I was very, uh, very much enamored of Paolo Freire. I loved Wendell Berry. So yeah, people, people like that have always, have always inspired me. And, and continue to. Yeah, that's a that's a long list. Oh, I, I'm 80 years old now, uh -huh. almost, and my memory's not as terrific as it used to be. Well, I mean, like I said, I'm 40, and my memory's not as terrific. But <laughs> when you mentioned Before, Wendell, let, let, Matthew, 40 is much older than 80. <laughs> when you mentioned um, when you mentioned Wendell Berry, I went to Ernest Gaines and just kind of the impact he had on, on oh, Ernest from Louisiana. Gaines. How could I forget Ernest? Yeah. Yeah. So I mean that that seems to be dying. That seems to be a place that that we can you know end for today. And I just want to kind of thank you for being with us. But I want to end with a quote that I actually reread today from James Baldwin that I think is is fitting for a lot of this, and especially for your story and everything too. And at the end of Stranger in the Village, he writes this: People who shut their eyes to reality simply invite their own destruction. And anyone who insists on remaining in a state of innocence long after that innocence is dead turns himself into a monster. Yeah, yeah, that's perfect. Can I read one real yeah. quick from Killers of the Dream? Yeah. Please. This mass rejection, this mass rejection of children has been a key thing on our region's conscience, and I would add on our nation's conscience. Like a dead weight dropped in water, it lies deep in the ooze of the old and forgotten. But when talk of change is heard, it stirs restlessly as if still alive in its hiding place and is felt minds innocent of participating in the original sin 
but who for involved reasons have identified themselves with it. Yeah, I mean, I think that that's fitting. Thank you for being with us today. Thank you, Matthew. It's been a pleasure. Keep up the good work. Thank you for listening to this episode of Dope with Lime. Did you enjoy this episode? Have thoughts? Use the hashtag Dope with Lime on social media or get in touch with us at lescenter at piedmont.edu. You can learn more about living at East Smith and the center by visiting www.piedmont.edu backslash les.